Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. Welcome to Queers. Each episode, we talk our way through questions on a theme. Let me just try that one again. Yeah, sorry, I just laughed because it says I'm so involved on there. It's the 1st of March, 2019. I'm Simon Copland. And I'm Benjamin Riley. Welcome to Queers. Each episode, we talk our way through questions on a theme, and this week, we're having another discussion about individuals. But before we get into the chat, I wanted to give a little shout out again for the queer reading group that I run, imaginatively titled Queer Reading Group Sydney. We meet on the third Thursday of every month at Better Red Than Dead Bookshop in Newtown on King Street. And it's great. It's kind of, I guess we have similar discussions to the kinds of things that we have on the podcast around a text uh, that that is different every month. The last month we did last month we did one called Cocksucking as an Act of Revolution, which was extremely fun. A uh, an essay from 1971 um, by Charles Shively and is really fantastic. So it's a great way to. I guess, chat to other queers about queer stuff, but also uh, have a chance to engage with some in- influential queer texts from from the last few decades. So you should definitely come along if you are in Sydney uh, or know anyone in Sydney who, who you think might enjoy it. Um, you can search Queer Reading Group Sydney on Facebook and join the group there or email queerreadinggroupsydney at gmail.com and I will add you to the mailing list. And I need to read that piece as well because you've sent that to me, Ben, and it sounds it sounds right up my alley. It's very good. It's it's uh really it's really dirty. Oh, great, perfect. <laughs> In our last episode, we sat down, fully intending to have a conversation about what individuals can do in the face of structural problems like homophobia. But as you may be aware, we didn't really do that. Instead, we ended up in a debate about to what extent we can and should examine individual participation within broader structures of oppression. This week, we want to return back to that original discussion. So while we often talk about large structures of homophobia and sexism, etc. on this podcast, today we want to have a bit more of a practical discussion, I guess, about what role we can all play in dealing with these structures. And look, who knows how it's going to go, because this is literally what we tried to do last time. From calling out homophobia and sexism to checking in on your own internal biases, 
There are lots of calls for individuals to take day-to-day action on their bigotry, but is this always helpful or even successful in dealing with structural issues? If not, what else can individuals do? So, Ben, let's get started. You know, let's maybe start with homophobia this week. Um, We might avoid the debate we had last time, um, which was a good debate. People should go and listen to that debate. Uh, But uh, when it comes to homophobia, I mean, we've mentioned this already. There's lots of arguments about what individuals should do to help solve the problem. So that can range from calling out homophobic sentiments when we hear it to challenging our own daily biases on on a daily basis. Do you think these things are helpful? Uh, look, I mean, we've been so buried in this discussion for what feels like a while now, and I think I've been thinking a lot about it myself in other uh, aspects of my life. And I think, yeah, it's so it's tricky, right? Like, I think that there are a whole range of things that play into this. I think the nature of kind of what that calling out looks like is really important. Uh, I I tend to, which will probably not be too surprising for people, tend to be very sceptical about what it means to call out people in a sort of public forum, for example, in that kind of, you know, call, call out culture way. But but I suspect that probably it it's more impactful to be doing that kind of thing with your friends mm. uh, or people that you care about or people who, who trust you. I was talking to to someone recently who said to me, just in relation to, I've been thinking a lot about what the idea of being cancelled on the internet recently for for various reasons, and uh, was talking to this to 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 someone about this, and and he said he made the very good comment that you know if you just have to kind of trust that, like if somebody that you care enough about to really value their opinion is going to call you out, they're going to do it in a way that's like more direct and more interpersonal and it's not, you know, the people you care about are not going to come for you on the internet. Um, and I think I think that there are there's potentially a space for really productive discussions, I don't know, between friends over coffee or over beer or, or I don't know, whatever. Um, so I think that that's potentially helpful. Uh, I think challenging our own biases is, is really important. I mean, I guess what this question, though, and what this topic is kind of getting at is is what what is the role of this kind of stuff in terms of broader systemic issues? And yeah, it's a really tricky one. I I think I I'm not I'm not willing to as much as I wouldn't want to say that you know, like obviously, structural change requires like solutions at the level above the individual absolutely but society and structures are also made up of individuals and so i i don't want to kind of throw away the idea that trying to change the ways that we ourselves not even as individuals but just as like the the people who are experiencing these structures and that's yep. the only way we have access to them that changing those perspectives and those behaviors is irrelevant. I don't want to... I just kind of can't believe that that's true. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. I think what I was thinking about with this and before we started, but also now even reflecting on it as you've been talking, is that I was thinking about the difference between... So, so I, you know, I completely agree with you that if you're having a chat with a mate and they say something stupid or they say something homophobic, that those kind of conversations can be really powerful and actually can be 
really strong. And I think that that can go right down to really uh, intense situations where someone may have engaged in, you know, uh, in sexual assault, for example, and you know, totally, and, and yeah. having that conversation that the sort of calling them out as an individual and saying that is not acceptable, and having like potentially a series of in-depth conversations about about that and encouraging them to change can be extremely powerful, particularly totally. when, it, when it's someone who friend. trusts you and yeah, yeah. particularly when it's your, when it's your friend. And I've seen that happen, and and I think that that has been really strong and has occurred in a way that when it occurs in a way that is not like you did this thing, you're now cancelled. That's the conversation we're having. Um, because I think that that is not particularly, I mean, it, I can understand why people might want to, f- might, f- you know, and it's up to individuals if they want to continue friendships with people who, who might, in, you know, engage in that kind of behavior. But I think that, um, you know, having longer term conversations can be more helpful from my perspective, at least, um, hmm. depending on the situation. I think what, I was just thinking about when you were talking, particularly when it comes to online stuff, is that I think that my issue is that those sorts of individual actions have now also become collective actions and have been seen as the way to do collective activism. And so I think you see that a lot online. So you've transformed those conversations about an individual action of, you know, your friend says something homophobic, you engage in that conversation and that, that is being seen as a form of activism. And when it, trans- mm. when it transforms into something online, it becomes, let's call out every random person as, as uh, you know, we need to, we need to make sure that, um, you know, no, no, no instance of homophobia goes unnoticed. And so you have this massive call out culture uh, in which everybody piles onto someone for saying something stupid or saying something, you know, maybe maybe intentionally homophobic, but you know, or or whatever. Uh, and I think that that's where it becomes unhelpful. Where uh, the potential good of doing something as an individual gets seen as a form of social activism, uh, whereas actually, for me, that's not social activism in many ways. That's just potentially being a friend or having a tough conversation with a friend or, uh, you know, you know, having those, you know, what you should do with friends, which is having challenging conversations uh, and. I think that when that gets transformed into social activism, it can lead into situations in which, you know, where we're talking about cancelling people and I, you know, and I get, I get fearful of being cancelled on the internet. I'm sure lots of people are actually. Uh, and I just read um, Ron Johnson's book, um, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which is all about this and the sort of yes, really yeah. negative effects that this has. And I think that, yeah, it's for me, it's the transformation of individual actions into a form of collective action that I think is where it becomes really blurry and where I where I start to struggle with it. Um, and so, yeah, that was that, that was something I was just thinking about. And I think that I don't know, maybe that maybe that's a framework that I'm that I'm just developing in my head about how I see these issues, um, because I do agree that when it comes to having a conversation with a friend or someone close to you, that's actually a really important thing to be able to do. Totally. But I feel like the like we can kind of agree pretty uncontroversial well i mean you know unfortunately not uncontroversially but at least between the two of us that that sort of uh internet call out culture is shitty both yeah, in absolutely. that it's kind of ineffective and it's like fucking awful and violent and and all of those things gosh and so I exhausting i just kind of made so participating oh my God. In it. totally i think to, to sort of sidestep the specific culture of that those sorts of activities yeah, yeah. i i think that 
the tricky thing is kind of going, okay, so we can kind of sit here and go that those conversations between friends are productive and good and useful. On what level are they useful? I guess, like, what is the extent of their usefulness? And I feel like what's kind of missing from this conversation, maybe, and and missing from the, the conversation in the previous episode, are perhaps some examples of the kinds of collective actions for structural change that we are saying are quote-unquote good or quote-unquote better. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, no, I totally know what Like, you mean. let's give... I, f- I feel like we need to give some examples of, like... Yeah, like, what are we talking about here? Like, are we talking about lobbying for law reform around industrial relations, for example? I mean, that's something that is, is something that's very important to me. Or are we talking about introducing, you know, like, like carbon trading schemes or, you know, like what, short of revolution, right? <laughs> um, what, what are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think this is really difficult because there's never actually a good answer to this question because everything has problems associated with it. It's not never perfect. Um, sure, and- sure. Yeah, and so I mean, I mean, and this is where I go back to my sort of activism days, um, which I'm not really as heavily involved in today anymore. Where you sort of need you're to you're a think different about, kind of activist now, Simon. Yeah, yeah, different kind of activist. But um, you know, when when I when when I was engaged in that kind of stuff, what we would do is is really establish what are the um, the structures we want to change, what are the things we want to change, and what are the tactics we can use to get there without sort of sacrificing other things. And I think quite frequently, uh, and and I guess the challenge for that is for lots of people is that being involved, and maybe the internet is partially to blame for this. I don't know. I'm still <laughs> following our conversation about the internet a few episodes back. I'm still like tossing. I'm so sort of constantly thinking about the internet and the role that it plays in all this stuff. Um, you know, what... Uh, you know, g- going back to the point I had before about, you know, I think that there's a potential of people seeing that just being on the internet now is a collect- is a- is that form of collective action, is that form of figuring out the structures you want to change and, in- and participating in it. But I actually think that there's something a bit more deliberate about the requirements about needing to do that. So when you talk about lobbying for industrial relations law, for example, um, you don't just, we don't just do that by being on the internet and tweeting about it. You actually need to meet up and join your union, for example, and participate in 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 collective, you know, in organised action. Yeah, yeah. And I well, I feel like that- there are I feel like there are two um, d- two points of clarification that we need to yeah, make sure. Yeah. One one of them is a, the difference between uh, collective action and a bunch of people doing something. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I think that that's that's kind of an important distinction, particularly when if if we were to potentially frame or not frame those sorts of internet campaigns as collective action, which I would argue that they are. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, maybe that's a, a, a something we can talk about. But I think the other one is that I don't. I think we should be careful not to conflate collective action with structural yeah reform. Because I think action that you can take good. collective you can take collective action for some to to bring down a single person. You know, yeah. like yeah, and that's, I mean that's what the Ron Johnson's book is entirely about. It's like people taking collective action to bring down a person, and sometimes a completely random person that, you know, not even a famous person, just some rando who tweeted something stupid on the internet, which people misread, you know, and Mm. that, you know, collective action doesn't mean it's good. Doesn't mean I agree with it. 
you know, there's plenty of, plenty of examples of collective action that, you know, right at this point of time, there is, I would say, a collectively organized campaign to defend George Pell from the right, right? And I'm not saying that that's a good thing or trying to bring down, sure. you know, so just because it's collective doesn't mean it's great. So, you know, uh, but, you know, if we're t- we want to talk about bringing down structures of homophobia, for example, I think that the collective nature of it has to be at least, it's not sufficient, but it's necessary. It's a starting, you know, you, you know, we're not going to do it, you know, having those conversations with your friends is really important. And it does, you know, there is evidence to suggest that, you know, interpersonal relationships are really an important part of that, but it's not going to do everything. You know, we need to do something collectively. Now, people are doing stuff collectively online where you're taking down an individual person. I don't think that's the sort of collective action I want to, I think is useful. And we have arguments for that. And we, you know, we talked about the, you know, we've talked about this a lot in the past about, you know, why we think a call out culture is really harmful. Um, But so, but I think that you still, that collective nature of it is, is a, yeah, it's, it's necessary at some point. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think ultimately just because structures are so much, or the the kinds of structures we're talking about are so big and powerful that individuals can't bring them down alone. Yeah, of course. You you know, you and I can't go out there and stop homophobia. Fix homophobia, yeah. yeah. You know, it's it's just not realistic. And... And the you know, and I think about you know, I, you know, I think it's useful to think about this in, you know, I think with homophobia it's interesting because um, there are things you can do. You can change your friend's mind, you know, and that's really great. And that that and so it, it you know, I think that's you know, that's useful because it is an empowering thing to do. And I think also with homophobia it's interesting because it's really hard to identify those structures. You know, it's really hard to identify the specific changes that are needed. And I and that's why I think it's so um it, it's so you know, you can want you know uh, it, it makes it so easy to see something as like a social media campaign to you know taking down that individual person as as a beneficial thing because it's really hard to see what are the underlying structures that are leading to this, what are the mm. what are the things that are happening. And so, when I think about this question, sometimes I like to think about a more practical example. And I think climate change is a really great practical example of this, where you've had environmental movements, and this has stopped recently, but for, you know, during when I was growing up in the 2000s, and people were talking about climate change, everything we spoke about was individual action. It was mm, yeah, yeah. change Turn your off the lights. Yeah, change your light yeah. bulbs. You know, we had Earth Hour, which was everybody turning off their lights yeah. for a thing, you know, which was a form of collectivized individual action. It was drive your car less, buy a hybrid, blah, 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 blah. And all of the evidence, that, you know, and there's been heaps of evidence that's been done about this. All of the evidence suggests that it's both, it's ineffective because it's not actually where the source of the problem is. The source of the problem is not us turning on our lights, you know, yeah, the, the bigger yeah, issues yeah. coming. But it's also ineffective because it makes people feel like if there is this massive, huge issue and the only way we can solve it is through turning out the lights, it actually just makes people feel completely disenfranchised from it because the... It, the the solution seems too small for the problem and people mm, aren't actually working yeah. collectively to do it the solution seems too small it doesn't make sense to people it's and and also a lot of people can't achieve the solution you can't um a lot of people can't not drive to work because they live in the western suburbs of sydney there's no public transport the only way they can get to work is through driving mm. yeah, yeah, and yeah. so when you and so what happens is when you can't achieve that that solution 
that means that you end up uh, sort of rejecting the idea of there being a solution at all because you start to feel guilty. You're, you're made to feel guilty about it. And so, mm. you know, there's and there's a bunch of evidence about that so that, you know, yes, you, people can't achieve the solution so they, they feel guilty about it. So they, they actually... And, and that can actually push people into denialism because because they're denying their own role in it because they can't achieve sure, anything. Sure. So it's easier to deny the science because they don't want to feel bad than to than to than to just feel bad about it. Yes. And I, you know, and I think sense. about that in terms of like, you know, and you can actually transfer that in terms of homophobia. So you 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 might have a situation in which you're at work, right, and your boss is a homophobic ass and you want to call that person out, but you can't because that threatens your job. You know, you know, there's a whole range of situations in which that can happen. And there's an expectation, you know, actually, we saw this a little bit with the George Pell thing, right? There was recently, so Eureka Street republished this piece from, um, I think his name is Frank Brennan, which was a piece talking about... Oh, yeah, yeah. The, you know, yep. Uh, and it, and, it, and it, people saying that that piece was you know, defending George Pell and then people... Uh, and then there was freelance writers who said that they weren't going to write for that Eureka Street anymore based on that. And there was a little bit of pressure on other writers to do the same. And like, well, for a lot of those writers, yeah, they they might be appalled by that, but they might also require that paycheck, you know, that, mm, that, yeah. that money that comes in. And so it's that kind of thing. Or now they might, you know, there's this guilt that's putting put on. And I think that that, you know, not it's not always as simple as just, you know, call out the behavior because actually sometimes there's a whole bunch of backlash that can come to you and that can change your economic circumstances or your social circumstances. And so, you know, you have to find, you have to find ways that people can do things without having to always put themselves on the line yeah. in that I mean, kind of way. Like, this is the idea of, this, these are the kind of the principles of the union movement, right? Yeah. That like, you know, there's an awareness that to change industrial relations practices is inherently risky for the people doing it. And so the union, part of the function of the union is to be a, uh, a, a support, a material and emotional support structure for the people engaging in that collective action in the face of potential retribution. Yeah, exactly. You know, that um, if one person steps, stands up, you know, it's easy to fire that one person. If a hundred people in the workplace stand up, you can't really fire all of them. You know, and yeah. so there's yeah. a, there's a power in that collectiveness. And I think that mm. that's actually a really important thing to remember that there's power in collective that you know has the potential to create change. Mm. And so I don't know. That's 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 how I think about it in terms of the problems with a lot of individual things that is actually much more difficult for individuals to take action than it is for us to get together and talk about it and figure out strategies where we can take action. Mm. Um, so I, I want to, so I just want to take a slight yeah, sorry, I've gone uh, left off turn. No, 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 that's okay. I want to take a slight kind of left turn in the discussion towards a, a, a really much more directly kind of practical uh, way of thinking about this. Cause I think, um, the the danger in talking about large scale collective action to change structures as the most effective way to make things better is that it becomes too big, right? Yeah, like yeah. it becomes, uh, we it's easy to get disenfranchised by just going, it's too fucking hard. Yeah, and I think. Like part of me, and this, in some ways, this this ties back to a conversation we had a couple of episodes ago. No, it was the last episode about uh, you and my, you're on my kind of different views, perhaps on ideology, 
um, which I had a really interesting chat with a, a guy on on Twitter about actually, who yeah, clearly just knows way more about this shit than I do. You know, so I feel like as soon as people start like quoting Marxist theorists, I'm just like, Ugh. so that's that's um, that was Dave. He's a um, he was my tutor in once at university. Oh, he, oh or cool. he was James's tutor. But anyway, we're friends. He lives oh, in nice. we're, 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 we're friends. So yeah, he, yeah I he, totally forgot to get it back engaged in that does debate. <laughs> no, he, he kind of scared me away a bit by the end of it because I'm just like, I don't know who any of these people are. He's a lovely um, guy. Oh no, he was very and he was yeah. very nice about it all. It was an enjoyable it was an enjoyable back and back and forth. And he engaged very uh uh, uh in good faith. Yeah. yeah. Um which which was nice. But I think so so kind of I, I bring that up because he's he gave the legitimate criticism that we were talking about ideology but didn't really say what we meant by that and if I can just sidestep sidestep that again because I I feel like it'll take us off on uh, it'll be a bit of a distraction in the context of this conversation I am very sceptical I can be very sceptical about large scale ideological projects for change Mm -hmm. because I think that they have a tendency to uh, become uh, like opp- oppressive, I guess. That that they have a tendency to uh, to to elevate the ideology above all, all else, and um, that like trying to explicitly deliver a kind of ideological change project is is a recipe for, I guess, like authoritarianism, like ultimately. So. For me, the kind of alternative to so so I feel like it's good to have really kind of concrete outcomes in mind rather than those kind of large. Can you can you uh, give an example like, uh, like, I mean, like any sort of, well, I mean, I guess the best examples are sort of like any sort of example of an authoritarian regime in real life, you know, <laughs> like on the on the left or the right, um, that they kind of come out of projects for and i'm getting very much out of my wheelhouse now and i'm sure people will bring me up on all the uh, many inaccuracies of history but any sort of project of revolution essentially tends to kind of lead to authoritarianism in a lot of circumstances when it's kind of attached to like an explicit ideological project and so i i tend to think that in terms of what we can do in our, like, you know, I, this is such a fucking tangent at this point, but, like, I'm not anti-revolution. I just think, it, I'm pro-revolution. I just think it it, it should kind of happen. Uh, I feel like it has to happen as a kind of, like, function of, of existing kind of social factors rather than be pushed for by a particular group of people who... Are pushing a particular ideology. Yeah, anyway, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's no, that makes like sense. kind of a yeah. a, a, a side. Yeah, and no, I th- actually think Marx would agree with you on that. Like, it's not. It's yeah, not, you know, totally. it's yes. the difference between a sort of like a bourgeois revolution, which you know, I think you know, my my knowledge of Marx on this is is a bit limited, but he would talk about the French Revolution as being more like one led by the bourgeoisie for particular as a as a way to replace other elements of the bourgeoisie versus yes. maybe the Russian Revolution, which got derailed by. Well, for the same reasons. Get derailed for the same reasons. Get derailed, but, you know, initially was more of a workers' revolution. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my understanding of Marx on this is that it's like the revolution has to be inevitable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, this is fucking alienating everyone who's listening. (laughs) But I feel like I say all of that stuff and I may just end up cutting it out. 
to say don't. that what I think is a more productive and like something that you just clearly can do and that's kind of not only uh, I think productively useful but kind of psychically useful as well in that it you can just sort of see the results is the similar sorts of projects for change in your immediate community. So that goes back to what we were saying about uh, talking to your friends, but I think it can be slightly larger than that as well. You know, what does it mean, for example, to like set up a, uh, a, a project in your immediate community to like support people who are sleeping rough, yeah. you know, near where you live or to set up a community garden and do something kind of interesting with the, the food from that or, to, to set up a queer up, reading group. Set up a queer reading group. Like, yeah. that's kind of genuinely the kind of thing that I, I have been thinking about in, in creating that group. Like, I feel like those are those are the kinds of... That's the scale at which I find I, I get really hopeful about these sorts of projects. Like, where it is collective. Like, it is about something larger than the individual. But it's also really immediate. It's, it's, it's having an impact directly on the lives of the people around you. And it's a, to me, it's a really lovely acknowledgement in the face of uh, neoliberal capitalism, effectively. That, and, and in the face of the kind of alienation of the society that we live in now to uh it's like an antidote to that you know it's about combating alienation itself it's about making things materially and emotionally better i mean emotion emotionalness is materiality as well of course it's it's about improving people's lives collectively in ways that are that acknowledges that your needs are a part of the needs of the people around you as well. Like it's about sort of acknowledging interdependency and interconnectivity. And I just, I think that's really, um, that sort of work excites me, I guess is yeah, what I'm yeah. trying to and say. Yeah, and I totally get that. And I think that it's great. Like there's, there's, it's, it's, it's great. It's great. You know, I think that, you know, a queer reading group is great. A local a community garden is great. You, you, that, you know, those kinds of things are excellent just in terms of people's happiness, let alone in terms of, you know, they are make, they're things that make people happy and things that make people happy are things that we should be doing and that we mm. enjoy. And But know, I think I think it's bigger than making people happy. Oh, yeah. I think it's, yeah, like it's, it's a, it, I think that those are kind of steps towards larger scale changes. Yeah, as well. and I think that that's, you know, where I get critical of those things is, where I, I I like that you said that you know there are steps towards larger change because I, I think that that's where I agree with you. I think where I sometimes get critical of those sorts of things, and I've seen this, and I have some some colleagues who are a bit like this who see that as being the larger change, as that is the that is the step that we just need to take. We just need to set up, you know, lots of community. Gar- this is a, a thing we get in environmental movements a lot. Like all we need to do is set up lots of community gardens and lots of like local libraries, and then everything will be better. Or you know, repair, sure, sh- you know, sure. repair, you know, repair sheds and things like that. And I think those things are great. You know, we have a little local library down by the road, um, down the road here, and I like to take my books to it. And, you know, then take some books from it and it's lovely, but that's not going to change. I mean, it's, it's nice, but it's not going to change everything. Uh, so I think that seeing that as a step is great and engaging with the conversation, you know, and I have no idea how your queer reading group works, but, you know, engaging with conversations about the role that this can, these kinds of discussions can play is really an important part of that as well. Um, but it's just what, like one element, I guess, not the whole thing. Um, and I, yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. I and I don't think I would say it's like it's. 
And I don't think you in were. In and of itself, the whole thing. I, but and I don't I, think you were. I think that I'm sort of just expanding on your uh, conversation. Yeah, no, yeah. totally. But I, but I also feel like I, I really would emphasize the, the trickle up, I don't know, effects, I guess, of that of those sorts of like that you don't have to in engaging in those sorts of projects explicitly be trying to link them to larger to kind of higher level structural change for it to have that effect that there is a kind of like you know to me for example community it's obviously a really kind of contentious term but in the way that i mean it and one we've discussed a lot on this podcast, in the way that I mean it, it being about that sort of interdependency and immediacy of connection mm-hmm. uh, and and collectivity on a kind of small scale, uh, that that's a kind of antidote to neoliberalism in such a way that by fostering a sense of community, a genuine sense of community among people at a smaller scale, that will have the effect of encouraging people to like, like, I don't know, maybe this is like totally naive or whatever, or totally just like airy fairy optimism. But like, I, I do think that that has the potential to kind of crumble the foundations of capitalism in, in certain contexts. Yeah. I I think I'll, 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 I'll slightly disagree with you on that. Sure. Um, I mean, I, and you know, like, I don't want to, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I think I, it. I, I think it know, has a lot of power. I guess is what I'm I trying to say. I think it has potential. I think that the problem I see is that still there's only particular people who can access those kinds of things, and I think that this is it's it ends. Yeah. It has been to be a very middle class thing. So you know, community gardens are great, and I think that they're positive, and I think we should do them. But most working class people are working so many jobs that getting daylight hours to go and participate in a community garden is not possible. Yeah, you know? yeah, of course. And, and so I'm, but I'm not just, you I'm have just to... talking about kind of community. I mean, community gardens are like yeah, one, that's my one that's example. My, it's one know, example but, you know, yeah. Um, I think that there's still a requirement to collectively organise to change working conditions so that people can participate yes, in these community yeah. things. And so those things need to work in together. So I think that you know that the uh, um, doing the things that you're talking about it is great, and I think it has the potential to spark discussions about the importance of those kinds of things, the importance of community. Um, but you still also need to be collectively organising to to change working conditions, to change our labour laws, I, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but I guess like the, I I guess I would see that sort of like collective organising at a community level around, for example, changing working conditions to be another kind of. Uh, example of the same thing. I mean, I guess okay, you kind okay. of run into run into problems when, like, I always think about. Um, yeah, when... I guess what you're saying, you know, the, we don't have to have a. Sorry, I cut you off. Um, you don't have to have a. We're organising to ch- you know, in our workplace to change this particular working condition. It's not a major revolutionary act, but it is a good thing. You know, it's a yeah, positive yeah. thing. You know, if we can manage to get it so that people have. Uh, you know, uh, extra, um, you know, can go, ho- you know, have the capacity to go home earlier. That's not going to change, you know, it's not going to cause a revolution, but it might mean that people can go and participate in, you know, have a better life and mm. can participate in and can lead to a step towards the, you know, a more, a different workplace or a different... Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, that's, that's one random example. But... 
Yeah, I mean, I think like where this sort of thinking, where I really run into trouble is in the kind of globalized nature of capitalism. Yeah. In that. And I was, th- I was think about the, um, like in Australia, uh, has it, there hasn't been so many high, really high profile examples of this in the last few years, but uh, there were lots of examples a, a few years back of governments bailing out the auto industry. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, and then you know, surprise, surprise. So you know, the the government, federal government, would give millions and millions of dollars to like I don't know Ford or Holden yeah. or whoever to 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 keep some manufacturing plant open, and then surprise, surprise, six months later, the plant would close and and like basically just destroy a whole town, and that's something that you just can't deal with at that community level organizing because these. Are structures of power that are so 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 much bigger than than that, yep. but have such direct impacts at that community level. So you know, like I think you, obviously you kind of run into problems there. And I, you know, um, I'm trying. Yeah, that's why I guess why I get to the stage of where it's 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 good, but it's not everything. You know? Totally, totally. It's not, you know, but it's I, great, but, I, but it's not everything. Yeah, but but I do think um, its value can't be overstated. Yeah, you know, yeah. and also just as a way to like make you feel like things aren't completely hopeless. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like, I feel like, yeah, absolutely. I feel like there's, a, there's a, I feel like I, the, I get a lot of value from those sorts of things as a way to just feel like I'm actually having an impact in yeah. the lives of people around me, yeah, yeah. which can be hard to do, I think, when you're talking and about- And can inspire you to do it Bigger more. political projects. Yeah, totally. Yep, totally agree. And I think when you're doing that, you're less likely- Quite frankly, from my perspective, you know, you're, you know, probably less inclined to spend your day on the internet shouting people down, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, engaging yes, in public community so. in face-to-face can, can be helpful in, in dealing with those sorts of situations. Thank you, everybody, for listening, as always. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. We've been uh, blown away with all the support we've received so far, but we'd we'd love some more support from you to help keep this podcast getting bigger and better. You can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash queers podcasts. Otherwise, if you'd like to get in touch or make a comment, you can do so through various ways on the interwebs. Yep, you can email us queerspodcast at gmail.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter at queerspodcast as well. Uh, I am on Twitter, although not really at the moment, uh, though I'm sure I'll be back at some point at Ben C. Riley. Simon's also on Twitter at Simon Copland, and he's on Facebook at Simon Copland Writer. Look, if you want to come back to Twitter, just you know, just just tweet me, and we'll have like lovely conversations. Yeah, that will be it. That, yeah. will, that will be it. I'll, maybe I need a private account or something. <laughs> uh, you can also find the podcast on our website, queerspodcast.com, or subscribe to us on either Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. Uh, and if you do so, please leave a review and rating, as that is a great way for other people to find us. Uh, and tell friends, because uh, that's a good, also a good way for people to to find us grab someone's phone and we should have like a i heard this on a podcast once they were like uh grab your friend's phone and just go into the podcast app and subscribe for 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 them so maybe i don't do you do that why yeah, not that's a good idea i like, Still that. That, I like idea. that strategy uh well thanks as always for listening and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another another episode thanks
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.